Thanks for listening to this podcast of Trending with Timory from the Relevant Radio app. Anything you share in terms of episodes, whether it's texting it to a friend, posting on social media, helps to build up the kingdom for God to help confront the challenging issues we face as a culture, but with joy, with hope, and with an eternal perspective where our faith collides with everyday life, bringing eternal principles to help us live our life joyfully. So, what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio. I have a pretty incredible story to share with you today on Trending. Ollie London will join me in just a moment. He is a young man who experienced a devastating struggle starting at a young age with ideology, ideologies that we experience today, everything from body dysmorphia to trans racial identity, wanting to be a Korean, Korean, but also a Korean woman, a pop sensation. There's so much to unpack in his story, but everything changed. One day last year, he was scheduled to go through, he had been through over 30 plastic reconstructive surgeries, chiseling down and changing the appearance of his face and other parts of his body. And he decided, because he had already been struggling with dysphoria, suddenly the transgender dysphoria, the transgender agenda started to come after him as well. And he decided he was going to transition to being a woman. Now, he'd already had cross-racial racial surgeries. He had grown up as a biological male in Britain, a British boy, and yet he was trying to identify as a Korean woman. And the story's pretty incredible. He was scheduled in December to start some of those plastic reconstructive surgeries that would permanently damage his body and the anatomy of his body. When before that could happen, last year he walked into a Catholic church. I was overjoyed to hear the news that Ollie London was detransitioning from this crisis he's experienced over the years. I've actually talked about his story before here on Trending. As you know, we are keenly covering what's happening on the LGBTQ agenda and ideology. And his story was one that piqued my interest about five years ago. And it is with great joy, Ollie, that you and I had the opportunity to speak today and share your story now here on Trending of coming into your identity and embracing your masculinity and discovering faith and how God transformed your life. Welcome to Trending. Thank you so much for having me, Tim Marie. It's a pleasure to be here. You have become a warrior in less than a year, going from this transgender, cross-racial identity to suddenly saying, no, this is wrong. This is wrong for adults. This is wrong for children. And you are traveling the world, really trying to set the record straight, especially with the fact that you've been inspired with your faith and healing that you're going through, but also giving a lot of the best factual and scientific sociological studies today on gender dysphoria. I want to start with sharing your story. Let's start at the very beginning. As a young boy, you grew up in Britain. Tell us a little bit about your upbringing and how your childhood started to feed that dysphoric experience. Right. So as a child, I was always a little bit more feminine. So I always stood out from the other kids in my classroom. Um, so as such, I was a subject of bullies uh, when I got to high school. And you know, I was targeted because I was very, very different. Um, 
So that really affected the way I looked, my image, my, you know, I was very self-conscious. And I also questioned my identity because, you know, boys were always teasing me at swim class saying that I had breasts because I was a little bit fat. So, you know, that really had a huge psychological and traumatic impact on me. And not only that, I also had a difficult relationship with my father. So he was emotionally manipulative and abusive. Um, and interestingly, as a child, um, a young child, when I went to elementary school, I went to a Church of England school. So we used to go to church every week. And you know, I always had very, very fond memories of that. It was always uh, you know, beautiful Chris Kringle sessions, uh, Easter egg races with the local church. Um, but what happened is my father was an atheist, so he didn't want me to believe in God. He didn't want me to believe in Jesus. So he kind of bashed that out of me as a teenager and I wasn't allowed to have my own thoughts or opinions. So he really made me kind of a very timid, very shy. I would never question his authority. And I also rejected wanting to become like him. He wanted to mold me in his image and I rejected that. So that's why I felt like I wanted to detach from the masculinity. He was a very masculine man. I wanted to detach from that and try to become more feminine like my mother. In mm. your story, I'm reading your book, and if you've not heard, his book just released this past week. Ollie London wrote the book Gender Madness, One Man's Devastating Struggle with Woke Ideology and His Battle to Protect Children. Ollie, in reading your story, you chronicle much of your relationship with your father, and you contribute to that relationship with your father to being at the root of your gender dysphoria as you ended up experiencing that rejection of what was masculine, this turn toward what was feminine in your mother, right? The soft and loving side versus the way your father presented masculinity with that um, rough, heartless masculinity that is so hard. I think a lot of men today, Ollie, struggle with this, whether it's because of the breakdown in their family and I know you share in your story a little bit about your father's where there's this wrong representation of what it means to be strong uh, this misrepresentation use of aggression and strength even that self-assured and domineering attitude that can be so damaging that this is part of what you were rejecting within yourself right I really wanted to reject everything that he taught me and you know he used to take me camping and outdoor things. And, you know, he wanted me to be very masculine, just like him. But I completely rejected that masculinity. I wanted to become the total opposite of him. So that certainly played a role in my severe body dysmorphia and severe gender dysphoria. And then, of course, uh, once I was at high school, the severe bullying, which was really, really horrific. Um, and, it, you know, it has scarred me to this day. That also played a significant role. And you know, I was just always different to other kids. And there are kids out there that are, you know, boys a little bit more feminine, girls that are tomboys, and that's totally okay. Um, but, you know, I was obviously, you know, as an adult, I went through this kind of identity crisis. I started trying to change myself. Uh, and really, I pushed all of these childhood traumas to the back of my mind. I repressed these memories. Mm. So it was only last year when I actually unlocked these memories in my mind and reprogrammed my brain to, you know, deal with these traumas. That was the uh, that was only when I was able to overcome this. There is so much to your story from the role of you and I growing up with MySpace coming on the scene and kind of hitting its peak when we were in our teenage years. I want to touch on all of it, but let's dive in. I know you mentioned key areas that I think are significant for people who are listening. When you were a child, as you were rejecting the harsh emotional abuse from your father toward you and your mom, you did things such as when you had the first opportunity to have a little bit of cash on hand, a little bit of pocket money, you used that as an opportunity to reject masculinity and buy 
more feminine girl toys. You mentioned Polly Pockets and My Little Pony and Barbies and how this was a part of what you gravitated toward because you wanted to reject all that your father was, even in the types of dress-up clothes that you were choosing to embrace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, it was all part of rejecting that masculinity, which I deemed in my mind as something that was toxic because I associated being masculine, being a man with my father and I really resented the way he treated me and also the way he treated my mother so you know, whenever I would have a little bit of money from my grandparents or or family members I would spend it on girls toys and I would immerse myself in that world and that was an escapism you know dressing up Barbies uh, dressing up in different costumes you know from different periods of history I had like a costume box um, so I really wanted to reject any semblance to my father and completely removed myself from him so so dealing uh, playing with these uh girly mm -hmm. toys and you know moving away from that was my way of kind of coping with these traumas talk to me a little bit about how you entered into that middle school high school age range i don't know if they call it middle school there in britain but i was really taken aback by your comments about what was happening during that transition into puberty and especially a study you mentioned talking about the mirror effect let's talk a little bit about your experience and how you see what happened to you actually was consistent with research regarding the mirror effect on young people in particular yeah, absolutely. So as I went through high school, of course, I started going through puberty. So around the 12 to 13, my body and my facial features started changing very drastically. You know, I had an outbreak of acne. Um, my nose started to get bigger. I started to develop kind of a condition called gynecomastia, which was basically male breasts, you know. So I had this kind of fatty tissue condition. So it really caused me to really struggle to accept myself for who I was. And, you know, it is a normal feeling. We do, you know, as teenagers, a lot of us do struggle. We may question the changes we're going through and we may be unsure because we can't understand it at the time. But, you know, it doesn't mean that we should go down such an extreme route and change. We just need to realize that is a normal part of growing up. But sadly, I, I didn't um, realize that at the time. And um, so I used to have a very severe obsession with looking in the mirror every day and being extremely self-critical. Um, so it kind of uh, links in, I talk about this in the book, Gender Manus, with the Greek god Narcissus, who was basically staring at his reflection in a pool of water for eternity. He was so transfixed with his own image in the way he was perceived, he would stare at himself for the whole of eternity. So I kind of felt like that. I was really obsessed with self-image and wanting to be someone else. And, you know, I felt at the time I had been cursed because, like I said, my father made me reject religion. So I had no kind of uh, feelings about God or, or the universe or anything. So I just simply thought, you know, I was born very unlucky. I was very cursed to look like this. And I really was so, so transfixed. And this is a psychological term, the mirror effect, because, you know, what we see in the mirror isn't necessarily what other people see. So other people right. can see something completely different, but we are sometimes our own worst enemy, especially if we're dealing with traumas or body dysmorphia or gender dysphoria. We look in the mirror and we see something completely different to what other people see. So that really had an effect on me. And I know that is something that affects many young people today because we have in this society an obsession with self-image, an obsession with looking a certain way. 
I am amazed to hear some of these things, such as your example where you talk about the mirror effect, this idea that during fundamental developmental years, if you are staring at yourself for long periods of time in the mirror, especially as you have the sense of discomfort with your body, how this leads to suicidality, depression, and negative feelings. Because as we look at what's happening worldwide with regard to this sudden gender onset where people are questioning their identity, it correlates directly with that timeline of awkward phases in life, in particular puberty or transitions from high school into college. We're seeing large groups of girls in those early college years who are uncomfortable, large groups of girls in those early middle school and going into high school years. And yet these are key areas where the body's changing. There's a sense of discomfort and dislike in the body. And I'm really taken aback by the significance of the mirror effect study because what we see, if you actually look at the research, which I know you are front and center on, is that most people who are experiencing experiencing gender dysphoria today actually are having an experience prior to that of some sort of depression, anxiety, maybe there might be some autism or OCD and other things going on that were never addressed. And after those experiences, later this experience of transgenderism or gender dysphoria occurred. And so what, what it highlights is that it's actually not the gender issue that's going on, but it's untreated depression and anxiety that was there long before it. Absolutely. I mean, that is the root issue that we have here. But sadly, doctors are misdiagnosing children all too eager to make a profit. So you know, we have to look at the underlying issues. And, and like you said, with puberty, every person goes for a change. Every teenager question themselves and they have this mirror effect. You know, they see some reflection that doesn't necessarily reflect who they really are. So what we're seeing now is kids being told they are the opposite gender they look in the mirror and they convince themselves that they are trapped in the wrong body. And it really does boil down to that these kids have underlying issues. And, you know, most of them are going through this stage, 12, 13, 14 years old of puberty, where it's a very confusing time. So the body starts to change, the mind starts to develop. So they have all of these confusing feelings. And then we also see, you know, with um, teens that are being diagnosed with gender dysphoria, Pretty much every single one has some underlying issue, whether that's yes. depression, severe anxiety, uh, the autism, uh, very high autism rates with kids that are uh, believing that they are trans. Um, you have kids that may have bipolar, schizophrenia. So all of these underlying conditions and what is happening now, which is truly a tragedy, is these conditions are not being treated. These kids are not getting the help that they need to cope with these yes. uh, conditions or these struggles that they have. They are instead being told that they are trans, they must get puberty blockers and hormones immediately in order to fix these problems. And it's really, really a harmful approach. So, you know, I struggled with anxiety, depression, body dysmorphia, gender dysphoria as a teen. And it was only as an adult because, you know, I grew up in a slightly different time. We didn't have all these doctors pushing transgender ideology on kids uh, when I grew up. But now, of course, you do. But as an adult, you know, I moved to another country, South Korea. It was a country that was focused on mirror images and looking perfect, looking a certain way. And then you know, I became very addicted to social media and that pushed the gender dysphoria on me. But you know, it's a real tragedy that all of these kids that have these underlying conditions or they may be just struggling going through puberty, they are being completely misdiagnosed and completely mm -hmm. betrayed by doctors. Ali, I want to talk a little bit more about social media in a moment here, but how key do you think the struggle 
with discomfort during that transition through puberty is on the gender crisis? I mean, if we look at all of the cases, the vast majority of people that are believing that they are trans are around 12 to 13 years old. And that is right. simply because they're going through puberty. So they're going through these changes that for them at the time, it seems unnatural and they have no logical explanation. So what happens is these kids going through this vulnerable stage, they are being exploited by teachers, by therapists, by doctors who are telling them the reason you have all of these questions and feelings is because you are a different gender to the one that you're born with. You know, instead of explaining to these kids, look, you're just going through a time, every person goes through puberty, it's totally normal. They are instead being told, these feelings you are having are because you're trans. And that is really the issue here. And the vast majority of teens uh, being diagnosed as trans or with gender dysphoria are around mm -hmm. this age where they're just right. uh, discovering themselves through puberty. So, you know, and that's why these doctors, they also target these kids you know, 11 or 12 years old in some states right. to have puberty blockers. Then they put them on hormones at 13. They are they are trying to stop these kids going through a natural process. You know, the mm -hmm. God-given process of growing up and becoming an adult. They are trying to stunt their growth. And the problem with that is, you know, firstly, you're putting harmful chemicals and medications into a child's body. But you are also completely altering their bone development. Because if you're giving a boy estrogen or a girl testosterone you are changing their muscle growth their bone structure everything about them so that is really it's a really criminal to do that to kids when they're just simply going through puberty as a mother it's frightening to see some of the legislation that various states including my home state of california is trying to implement where they're actually talking about the fact that we shouldn't allow parents to let their children go through quote the wrong puberty so the idea is is that they would start implementing hormone blockers early on as young as two and three years old so that we'll just wait and see how the child chooses they want to develop and in the meantime we will block all the natural processes of the body it is startling and frightening in fact i was recently banned on youtube and one of the videos the last videos or, or sorry episodes that i uploaded to trending included me addressing what's happening in california that they would want to take potentially someone such as my two-year-old child away if she made a joke which a lot of children do saying mommy i'm a boy but i didn't allow her to take puberty blockers or i didn't usher her into a male identity it's absolutely ridiculous if you are listening to me now this is trending with Timory. I'm joined by Ollie London. He is a young man from Britain. He wrote the book Gender Madness, one man's devastating struggle with woke ideology and his battle to protect children. The book just came out this past week. Let's talk a little bit about, I want to talk about bullying and ostracization, but let's talk about your transition into uh, to college. You end up in college there in the UK. You end up in college around 16 years old. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. So here you are, you're in college. And at the same time, MySpace is on the scene, which you and I experienced as key during our high school years it was the first time really in history suddenly you could emote your experiences to the world and whether they were good bad or ugly receive attention for them how where were you at in your journey at the time and how did social media impact you even just with the earliest version of myspace you know so myspace was really the first 
social media platform I think many of us in our 30s would have used. And, um, you know, so I'd been through high school. I had a really tough time. I didn't have any friends there. I was treated like a loner, like a reject, you know, bullied every single day, basically, and made to be confused and made to hate myself and my own mirror image. So by the time I got to college, I still got bullied there, but it wasn't as bad. I had a, a slightly better experience there. And, you know, I started to feel a little bit better about myself. And then what happened as an outlet to try and, you know, feel good about myself, I discovered MySpace at the age of 16. So you know, I created a profile, um, you know, added filters, created, basically it was like creating a caricature of yourself or creating this persona that you can be somebody that you're not, somebody that looks better, somebody that is popular. So I kind of created this MySpace profile and it became pretty popular. Um, and, you know, it was reinforcing um, all of these feelings that I never had, you know, positive reinforcement comments that are kind, uplifting, saying that I looked handsome. So this was really the first time in my life that I started to get this kind of um, positive reinforcement and validation. And, you know, of course, over the years since MySpace, you know, I'd started using Instagram very heavily. And then, of course, TikTok, you know, up to eight hours a day at one stage. Um, so I certainly think the social media changed me because it made me feel validated for a short period of time. And it's like a it's like a serotonin hit because, you know, you get that or a dopamine rush, you get that nice comment or you get a 100 likes on a post and suddenly you feel good about yourself. But then suddenly the next day, if you don't get those number of likes or comments, uh, you start to question yourself again. So mm -hmm. it really does push your mind for extremes. And you know, I have a study quoted in the book talking about this, how you know, kids these days, their brains are being conditioned to crave this dopamine hit of the number of likes or positive comments they get. And they rely on that for feelings of their self-worth. So I started to develop, you know, feelings of I only feel good enough if I'm online. I only feel good enough if I get a certain number of comments or positive words. So that really became kind of driving me to want to change myself even more through surgery, through, you know, completely changing my identity, because it made me think that I'm getting this positive reinforcement. Finally, people think that I look good because I'm using a filter. So maybe I can actually look like that filter. Isn't that so heartbreaking, Ollie? You are sharing what all young people want, positive reinforcement, compliments, affirmation, seemingly love, and you weren't receiving it in face-to-face -face real life. And so here, boom, MySpace, the first social media pops up on the scene, and you're being flooded with this. You feel amazing. And so you start living online, and as the years go by, you became a pop case sensation, and you saw your social media follow and grow. I followed you for years on social media, I think going back well before 2018 even. I followed your story before you experienced transgenderism, and so much of this has been fascinating to see because my heart broke just watching what was happening because you were chronicling every nitty gritty detail about how you had your chest transformed as you would have each surgery. It was scaling away at parts of your face to make you less masculine. And yet at the heart of that, it turned into, would you say in some respects, a social media addiction? Because you had all the likes. You had, you were hitting the algorithms. I mean, the algorithms were presenting you to me because of the social media hit of transgenderism especially over the last eight years how was that and was it an addiction for you just being on social media receiving that positive reinforcement yeah absolutely you know i'm not afraid to confess that and i think so many young people do experience the same thing it's you know when you've never felt validated then suddenly you get that positive reinforcement 
it encourages bad behavior. So that's why we see, you know, for me, for instance, I started to share these changes online and, you know, people would be receptive to it. People would comment and praise me that I looked better, I looked handsome or whatever. You know, so that was a positive reinforcement. So it made me want to do more and more extremes because mm -hmm. in my mind, it was getting that dopamine hit that I, mm -hmm. I am good enough, I am worthy because people are liking my pictures. And it really is sad because clearly looking back on it now, I'm happy to admit it was a severe mental health struggle that I was projecting on the world. And of course, very much driven by social media. And I think many, many young people can identify with this because this is the society we sadly live in. You know, we value our own self-worth based on our, our, our on online presence, how many followers we have, how many likes we have and stuff. So that really did encourage very bad behavior. And, you know, I was projecting that bad behavior and sharing my trans transition journey from the surgery to the uh, transition surgeries as well online. And, you know, it was really a mental health crisis. It was a cry mm -hmm. for help. But, you know, the mm -hmm. more people would uh, praise me, the more I'd be encouraged. But also the more people that would send me hate, you know, I had some really bad hate. That would make me mm -hmm. almost want to do it more because I wanted to prove the bullies wrong. Mm -hmm. Just yes. like in high school, I wanted, always wanted to prove these bullies wrong. So in my head at the time, it was me trying to prove these people wrong and say, I am worthy. I am good enough because, look, I can change. I can make myself an improved version. But you know, looking back now, it was a severe struggle. And you know, I, I don't really use TikTok or Instagram that much mm -hmm. now because I just realized it really is toxic. Mm, I want to talk a little bit about that coming off of social media. If you're just joining me, this is Ollie London. He's sharing his incredible story from it, wanting to identify. He's a British male, biological male. He wanted to identify as a transgender Korean woman. He changed everything, though, a day last year when he walked into the Catholic Church. And I'm here celebrating his story because I have followed his story for years. And it's broken my heart. And I'm overjoyed to see where you are coming into your Catholic faith. We'll talk more about his story. He, uh, I I think help for parents who maybe are experiencing this transgender dysphoria in their children. We'll talk about the link with the bullying and ostracization and also just the links between a lot of the social studies internationally pointing to the truth about gender and the impact that these transitions have. You're listening to Trending with Timory. That's Ollie London. We'll be right back here on social media. So what's trending? Bridging your Catholic faith with your everyday life. You're listening to Trending with Timory on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Ollie London joins me today on Trending. He experienced transgenderism, body, dys body dysmorphia. He grew up in Britain and was a British young boy. And yet he identified as a Korean woman and actually had surgeries, cross-racial surgeries to change his face. He underwent over 30 surgeries and was about to go through with so-called gender-affirming therapeutic surgeries when he walked into a Catholic church. Praise God. Pray for him through his journey. We're going to share the good news of that transition into walking into the church and what that faith what God's intervention and calling Ollie into the church did to be a catalyst for change. I want to hear a little bit more of your story, though. Talk to me a little bit about the surgeries. I want to talk in particular about how you found one of the gender clinics in Armenia, this random clinic online, because I have these gender clinics advertised to me all the time, Ollie. 
I don't experience transgenderism, but I see these clinics and you're drawn in with just the curiosity of the morbid dimension of what's happening. It's amazing because in the United States, this is perfectly allowed and in some respects legal and children are being allowed to do it. It's the only place in the world that's still allowing children to legally go through gender transition. So talk to me about how you found the clinic in Armenia on social media and a little bit of that horrible experience. Yeah, well, it really was a horrible experience. And that's actually the first chapter of my book, Hospital of Horrors, because, you know, it was a, a procedure where I nearly died. And you know, I was feeling very desperate. And that's the problem with a lot of young people these days. They really struggle with their body image, the way they look, their identity. So they are prepared to cut corners in order to find a doctor that will say yes. So you know, I went to a country, Armenia, which, you know, doesn't have many hospitals and not good reviews on the hospitals as well. And I found this doctor on Instagram and he immediately said yes. Um, so I had a, a nose surgery and a gynecomastia procedure, which was removing basically my male chest uh, because I basically had almost male breasts. And it's a condition called gynecomastia. Some some guys do have it um, naturally. So I booked this doctor on Instagram, couldn't find a single review online, couldn't even find an official website, couldn't even find the address of the hospital, but I didn't care. I was in mm. such a bad uh, mind frame that I was just like, this person has said yes to me. I don't care if this is a back alley surgery. I don't care if he's even got a license. I'm going to risk my life to do this because I've been bullied so much about this. I've been very mm. self-conscious. I need to do it. So I flew to Armenia. It was a really surreal experience because the hospital itself um, was something like from the 1950s, from the, uh, the Soviet Union, from the communist era. It was very scary, you know, very limited medical medical equipment, very limited technology. You know, it looks ancient technology, you know, <laughs> from 50 years, 50, 70 years ago. So it was horrifying. But, you know, I went through this procedure and, um, you know, I woke up and I was in absolute agony for three days. I was not able to move even one centimeter or mm. one inch in the bed. Um, it was horrific. And I had drains. To get the blood out of my body, it was the inside me, physically through my nipples. I had drains, and then after three days, you of experienced this... internal bleeding. Just to be clear, like not right. healthy bleeding, internal bleeding from this back alley surgery you had gone to a different country for. Mm-hmm. It was a lot of internal bleeding. I mean, I had um, these tubes were connected to bags that were ar- around my hips, and yeah, they were filled with uh, blood. Um, so it was very, very dangerous to do that and to have that internal bleeding because you know, if you have a blood clot after a surgery you know that is the thing that kills people when they have plastic surgeries mm-hmm. so you know, it was horrendous and after three days the doctor ripped out these tubes without warning out of my nipples with no anesthetic no medication nothing mm-hmm. and you know, I was left shaking uncontrollably for about an hour and you know I was begging for morphine because I was like I need something to take me out of this pain and you know I will never forget that horrific experience but even though I could have died very easily, I could have died. Um, I still believed at the time that I had no choice but to do this. I was willing to sacrifice my life simply to look good, to feel good. So that just gives you a sense of my mindset at the time. And the mindset of a lot of young people these days, how desperate and how helpless they feel. They feel that this is the only option and they don't care how irreversible these surgeries are. They don't care about the risks or complications they generally believe at the time that this is the only reason, this is the only thing that's going to make them happy. Mm. And it's really a sad mindset. You know, I wish I would have had therapy or some support system to have stopped me. But, 
that is the sad reality of mm. people that have severe body dysmorphia and gender dysphoria. And that actually is a testament to the clinic in the UK that was still operating doing gender transition surgeries. It closed last year, Travistock Clinic. I remember when it closed and what was happening there is horrific. If we have time, we'll have to talk about it a little later because there were children who were experiencing eating disorders and all kinds of pre-existing underlying conditions, yet doctors were going through without any any mental health concern for these children and going through bodily mutilation, cross-sex hormones. So if we have time, I want to talk about that. If not, we'll just have to have you back on. But let's talk a little bit about the fact that bullying and ostracization is a catalyst for many people who experience, whether it's gender dysmorphia or transgender ideology being lived out. Um, can you talk a little bit about how we're seeing studies, international peer-reviewed secular studies, such as Finland, the UK, and Canada. We talk a lot about them here, but I'd like to hear them from your perspective, having lived this experience of bullying and loneliness and isolation in light of these studies. If you could share a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, so I've got a lot of, I've done a lot of research for my book. So people that um, order my book, Gender Madness on Amazon, they can actually find the second part of the book discusses all of these studies. So there was a very big study in Finland at a top gender clinic. They found there was a significant correlation between children that were bullied and then wanting to transition because these days being trans has become a trend. So a lot of mm -hmm. kids are now becoming trans in order to stop the bullying because, you know, they get praised, they get love, and suddenly you know, the teachers, all of the other kids, they validate them. So you know, there For is a, a, a real... right. A there is a... <laughs> There is a real link. And then, of course, there's a Canadian study by Dr. Brady, Bradley, which is um, quoted in my book. And this was one of the pioneers in gender transitions on kids in Canada for like 40 years. And they have now said that, you know, there are links between kids that are struggling with autism or kids that are being bullied and ostracized. So uh, some of them might have a broken family and maybe they have some childhood traumas or abuse. So transitioning for these kids is a way to try and beat the bullies to stop all this to you know feel included because look at the way that trans kids are celebrated now they are put on a pedestal they are mm -hmm. you know looking at these influencers like dylan mulvaney and getting right. brand deals millions of followers millions mm. of dollars so kids are looking at that as an example that i can beat the bullies if only i change my pronouns if only i say that i'm trans mm. so there is a significant link in many studies in norway in finland in sweden they indicate there is a significant number of kids that are bullied that transition to try and beat these bullies. And we only see these numbers rising, but one study in Finland, you mentioned it in your book, we've covered it here with licensed marriage and family therapist Michael Gasparo, who works with people experiencing gender dysphoria and same-sex attraction. And that study from Finland shows that nearly half of all young people who are going through gender transition experience extreme bullying and low self-esteem as children. And so this resulted prior to any gender dysphoria, severe depression in these children. And so I think that's such a key element of this entire story. Now, last year, you weren't just experiencing this desire to reject what was masculine in you. You had gone through cross-racial surgeries. Tell me briefly how you led into wanting to become a Korean woman, and then we'll get to the good stuff with having walked into a Catholic church. Um, so I actually moved to South Korea in 2013, and I really fell in love with the culture. It was the first time I was independent. I was in this new world, and it was 
really magical. But the, also the thing about Korea was plastic surgery is everywhere in Korean society. Oh, you see every single actor, singer, they all have it. And you see billboards everywhere, advertisements. So it was the first time I had the possibility of changing myself. And that really made me think maybe I can change my look. So originally I was going for, you know, a feminine kind of Korean pop star kind of look based on the, the, the kind of popular surgeries in Korea at the time. And, you know, over time, once I feminized myself, I was still not happy and still something was missing. So then I underwent uh, the transgender facial feminization surgeries where I had all my bones shaved down in Turkey. And um, you know, that was... Um, that was tough because I did 11 surgeries in one day. I wasn't able to open my eyes for three days. Um, and again, wow. it was, at the, you know, at the time, every time I think I deserve this, I deserve to be going through this pain. I don't care if I lose my life. It's worth mm. the risk. And that was my mentality. So, you know, once I had the, you know, transgender facial feminization and then shared that with the world, I, you know, I, I came out publicly when I went to the Cannes Film Festival. I walked to the red carpet in a pink kind of Barbie dress. And I then I suddenly had all of this praise and suddenly mm -hmm. this validation that I never really had. So it was all this reinforcement. And that's the problem is when people, kids, young people, vulnerable people, they transition, they get all this reinforcement. So it's very hard to stop that behavior because you feel like you're letting the world down. So I was struggling internally. I was trying to convince myself that this is who I'm meant to be. This is who, you know, people have always been telling me I was more feminine. Um, but really I was struggling internally and I was masking all the suffering inside with a smile, you know, and sharing that with the world. Mm -hmm. So it was only after, you know, struggling with that, uh, publicly. And then I realized, you know what, I need to change something about my life because I was already booked for, um, having the breast surgery in Thailand. Um, you know, so it was, it was going to get really extreme with mm -hmm. what I was doing. So it was, I needed to stop that. Before we get into the the part where you walk into Catholic Church and stop the breast surgery, stop the bottom surgery, brief question, because I am curious. Here in the United States, for both adults and minors, cross-sex surgeries, hormones, most of it is actually covered through healthcare plans, the government, a number of funding sources. I imagine these were high-ticket surgeries for you. How did you fund all of this, especially with traveling all over the world for the surgeries, over 30 surgeries you went through? Yeah, so you're right. In, in the US, in some states, some Democrat states, they actually demand that Medicaid and Medicare do cover it. So that's why you see a lot of teens transitioning, because mm -hmm. it is very expensive to do that. You know, these surgeries are very, very expensive because you have to have a specialist clinic, a specialist doctor and recovery time. So that is why we see a lot of young people transitioning, because Medicaid and Medicare is actually paying for it. Um, but in, in my case, in particular, you know, I was traveling the world because firstly, the doctors in the UK would say no to me they would not operate on me. They said, you know, you don't need to do this chest surgery. You don't need to do the nose. You're perfectly fine. So they wouldn't operate on me. So I was going to doctors that would just say yes. So, you know, I'd traveled to over five countries to have these mm. surgeries. Um, and, you know, it does add up over a 10-year period. It was sev several hundred thousand dollars because, you know, when you're coming to doing revision surgeries, such as with my nose, with my chest, I had to do a revision surgery. Every time you do a revision, the cost increases, sometimes double, sometimes treble. And then you also have the, you know, I was doing a lot of complex procedures that very specialist doctors could do. So changing my bone structure, feminizing my face, these are very specialist procedures. So you know, that becomes very, very expensive. So, you know, it was, you know, I spent a lot of money. I used to be a personal shopper. I was very successful at that. And then, you know, I obviously became an influencer and stuff. So I used all the money I made from brand deals to invest in my face and my body and changing myself. 
thinking that it was an investment that was going to make me happy, but really it was just making me more and more unhappy. But I couldn't stop. It was a snowball effect. It was an addiction, which I talk mm-hmm. about in uh, the, my book, Gender Madness. For a lot of young people, when they start to do one body modification, or even if they're transitioning and maybe they start to wear makeup, then next they do the hair extensions, then they want to do the hormones. So we see this process which becomes like a snowball that's unstoppable. It's rolling down the hill and you just can't stop. And, you know, mm-hmm. again, when you get positive reinforcement, you yeah. continue down this path because you think, you know, people think I look great. People think my new identity is great. So it reinforces that behavior. But everything changed when you walked into a Catholic church. I want to come back sharing the good news of your so- story, your detransition, the incredible work you are doing now. That's Ollie London here on Trending with Timur on Relevant Radio sharing his story. And you can actually read about it. Tons of great sociological and psychological studies backing the horror of the transgender movement. The book is called Gender Madness, One Man's Devastating Struggle with Woke Ideology and His Battle to Protect Children tagged him on social media i'll be right back here on trending but i'm posting a link to the book on social media especially twitter x whatever you want to call it follow me at timmery t-i-m-m-e-r-i-e we're talking about what you're thinking about you're listening to trending with timmery on relevant radio and the relevant radio app Ollie London is here with me from Britain. He has an incredible story. If you haven't heard of him, he experienced everything from gender dysphoria, body dysmorphia, roots going back to his childhood, unhealthy relationship with his father. He's in his 30s now, and last year, everything changed. He wanted to look like a Korean woman. He had gone through over 30 plastic reconstructive surgeries, and he was scheduled Two between this year and last December, he was scheduled to go through with top and bottom surgery, doing permanent damage to his sexual organs. But everything changed last year when he walked into a Catholic church. Ollie, tell me what happened. What made you go into the church? You walked by it hundreds of times. What was different that day? Well, I was really, really lost with my life. I'd been really going down this uh, very dangerous trajectory you know, this constant surgeries every six months, and it was becoming increasingly, increasingly more dangerous to put myself through that. And, you know, I had a really difficult time with my mother. You know, when I showed her that I was trans, she was very upset, you know, very upset that I'd been through more surgeries, and she was really struggling to come to terms with it. So, you know, I had some questions in my mind, is this really the right thing to do? But then I had other people in my life that were saying, you look amazing. This is who you're meant to be. So mm. I was really, really torn. It was such a difficult situation. And for those of you that know um, the famous uh, Robert Frost, um, his uh, poem about two roads diverged into a wood. So I was presented with two roads in front of me. I could continue down this path that I was going on, which was da- a dangerous path that was spiraling out of control rapidly and making me unhappy inside. And it was not going to end well. Or I could take the other path that was maybe more risky because it was something unfamiliar, but I could take this path and decide to change my life and take the risk to change my life. And you know, I thought that that was what I needed in my life that at that moment. So I took this path less tra- traveled by, like Robert Frost said, I went to this church, you know, close to my home. And, you know, I've seen this church so many times. It's a beautiful medieval church. And um, 
I just walked in. Something drew me into that church that day. There was some kind of energy or something in my mind was telling me, go in here. It might help you. And I just went in there. I sat at the back. Uh, there was a, a sermon. I sat at the back very quietly and peacefully. I just observed. I listened, listened to the hymns. And it was a beautiful feeling. It was a feeling, firstly, of a community because all of these people I looked around, you know, they were all happy. They were all smiling at each other. They were all, they had one common common purpose. So I thought that was a beautiful thing. And I didn't really have that in my life, that kind of sense of community. So that was a beautiful feeling. And then just to hear some of the stories about Jesus and, you know, he went through a lot of difficulties in order to try and help other people. And it made me realize, you know, maybe I've been through all these difficulties because I have a purpose, you know, we all have a purpose, right? And it started to make me realize that, okay, every single human being, we are put on this earth for a reason. We may not realize it in 20 years or 30 years, but at some point in my our life, we realize that we have a purpose. So it was at that moment when I realized, you know what, I've been on this dangerous trajectory. It's unhealthy for me, unhealthy for those around me. And it's also, it's, it's I'm a bad role model. You know, I have millions of followers on TikTok and on Instagram and it's like, I just felt like bad. And, you know, I felt like a sinner. And of course, we all sin. So I also did a confessional, you know, and I spoke to the priest and I felt guilty about, you know, sharing my identity crisis online and mm. perhaps influencing people. So uh, the priest reassured me, you know, we are all sinners, uh, but it's about redeeming ourselves and finding redemption. Mm. That is the important thing and turning our life around. So that was really a powerful moment. And then I just started to go back more and more and more and Every time I'd go back, I'd feel empowered. I'd feel like, you know what, I can defeat this addiction because, you know, it's like somebody that has an alcohol addiction with the surgery addiction or changing identity. It really is a very dangerous addiction, like a disease, and you can't overcome it so easily. So it was giving me that power, you know, and I felt like, you know, all of these people, they were kind people. They were trying to make the world a better place. And I remembered when I was young, you know, in my early 20s, I went to Africa, I went to Ethiopia to help with a charity project. I used to try and help people. I used to be a good person until I became corrupted um, mm. with this pursuit of this obsess obsession over my mirror image. So it really gave me perspective that, you know what, I need to turn my life around like ASAP. I need to do it right now because I've been on this path. It's not going to end well. And I need to turn my life around. And just going more and more and more gave me that strength and courage to make the decision to detransition, also make the decision to speak out and, you know, try to help other people. Yes, and you have been a powerful voice these last months. And when you first walked into that Catholic church, you were at the end of a mass, the people left, and you found yourself sitting there with a Bible. And it's pretty incredible. The Bible passages you came across, you ended up reading about the story of Jesus healing the leper. Tell me about the story and how it impacted you. Well, you know, I really identified with that story because when, you know, when the priest read about that and I remember reading about that as a kid in the um, when I went to the Church of England school in elementary school, and it just brought back those memories because I had a lot of, lot of repressed memories that I hadn't even thought about for well over two decades. So it really unlocked these memories in my childhood going to church, and I always had fond memories. But my father stopped me being religious. You know, he tried to stop me uh, believing in God, and he basically forced me to be an atheist. So. Uh, the, the story of the leper, I think, was very powerful because I almost identified with the leper in the sense that the leper was you know, living in a leper colony. He was outcast from society. He was judged. People wouldn't go near him. People would always mock him. And, you know, 
fully him and I identified with that person. So when I saw that Jesus, you know, at his own personal risk at the time, because remember, they used to believe that it was contagious, they could catch it. Uh, he went out of his way to visit this leper colony, to heal this man, mm. to wash him. And I thought that was a beautiful, beautiful analogy about, you know, people, I felt like the leper. I felt like I was that reject. I was struggling with myself. I was being rejected by society, but I felt that the Christian community had suddenly washed me. They poured water over me and woken me up and said, you know what, you are part of our community. We are all God's creatures. And I thought that was a very, very powerful story, which of course I talked about in the book. Now, Ollie, you're in the process of coming into your Catholic faith. You have an army of prayer warriors, let me tell you, listening right now across the nation who are praying for you and will be praying for you. And I'm asking you to pray for Ollie through this conversion experience. Share with me a little bit what that's been like. You know, it's beautiful. Every single day for the past year, I've had beautiful, beautiful messages. Every day, people sending me morning prayers, people sending me motivational quotes from the Bible and you know, from Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. And it is beautiful to have that. You know, these people, a lot of these people are strangers. They're just messaging me online. And to have people around the world, you know, praying for me and praying for these other people, because at the end of the day, we really do need to pray hard for all of these kids, all of these parents that are going through this. We need to pray that the world wakes up and stops all of these transitions on kids. But it is so beautiful. And, you know, I'm so grateful every day. And when I wake up and I check my messages, that is what gets me out of bed in the morning. That is what motivates me. And when I also see these messages from parents saying that you've helped uh, my situation with my family, you've Mm -hmm. helped my kids, you've helped me understand the situation better, whether that's from my book or from when they see me on TV interviews, that is a very beautiful thing to wake up and know that you are helping someone. So that is so inspiring. And I'm so grateful to every single person listening right now and every single person praying because we all need to pray for these kids. We really do because society is lost right now. It's, it's, it's not looking good, but we can turn it around with prayer. You know, God has a reason for everything. So we can turn it around. But I'm just eternally grateful. And, you know, for anyone that's detransitioning or going through a struggle, just knowing that there are Christians out there that have got your back, that are speaking up to you, that are thinking about you, that are motivating you, that is so, so inspiring. And, you know, I think anybody going through a struggle, just having one person, let alone a whole community of amazing Christians, uplifting you, that sometimes can save many, many lives. Amen. Ollie London, your story is incredible. I'm so proud of your courageous voice because you could detransition and be silent. You'd have every right to with everything you've experienced, yet you're choosing to fight this battle, especially to protect children today. I have so many follow-up questions. We're going to have to have you back on soon, especially to give guidance to Christians facing this gender crisis, to parents who are experiencing this. What would you say to young people? So we'll have to work on bringing you back on. But if you haven't already purchased the book, an incredible testimony, tons of stories, great for young people as well who are hearing about stories such as his. Ollie London, the titles Gender Madness, One Man's Devastating Struggle with Woke Ideology and His Battle to Protect Children. Ollie, thank you for joining us. Please pray for Ollie through his conversion and coming into the Catholic Church and for the incredible work he's doing telling the truth about what it means to be male and female. Do you know someone who has had an abortion? This is Timory from Trending with Timory. Monday, I'm going to talk about the trend on TikTok of all places, 
where woman after woman shares her story of having had an abortion, mourning lost motherhood, the loss of her child, but then she says she would still have an abortion again. What should we do to heal from the wound of abortion? We'll talk about that Monday here on Trending at 6 p.m. Central on Relevant Radio or the Relevant Radio app.